Last week we focused kind of on the beginning and the end. This week we're going to focus right on the middle, verse 14, but we'll read the whole thing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but what? Born of God. Now up until now, I just want to pause here. Up until this verse, by the way, there's nothing in here that's really offensive uh, to uh, Greek thinkers, perhaps, uh, even to a Jewish audience. There's nothing in here that's alarming or offensive We come to verse 14, all bets are off. And the Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Piles of grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Pray with me. Father God, we come to this magnificent text, this beautiful entry into the Gospel of John, and uh, I confess my weakness, confess my need uh, for your Spirit to come and work. Spirit, would you come and make Christ known? Would you come and make him present? Give us eyes of faith. Give me faith this morning. Lord, we pray that you would uh, come and take this word and apply it to our hearts. We thank you and lean on your promise that your word will accomplish everything you sent it for. It never returns to you void. We come to you hungry this morning, knowing that you are good to feed your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're going to take this passage in three uh, points today. Uh, The foolishness of God in being made flesh. The foolishness of God. The fleshiness of Jesus heals our fallenness the fleshiness of Jesus. And the fullness of God is revealed through a frail witness. I tried to do all Fs for you guys. The fullness of God is revealed through a frail witness. That's our third point. So first, the foolishness of God. The scandal of the incarnation. God is a fool if he were made flesh. Okay? Uh, that's what we're told over and over, that this is a foolish thing for God to do. Okay? God is holy, and pristine, untouched, 
not dependent on anyone, not vulnerable, not able to be hurt. Uh, if we're honest with ourselves, we probably ought to say, this is kind of crazy. This is kind of foolish. God looks like a fool for having taken on flesh. We often don't feel the pinch behind this passage, right? We read this and, uh, amen, you've probably heard this passage a hundred times and I'm glad you have. But to really sit on this passage is to begin to feel the pinch, right? And I think we, we often don't feel the pinch here because we kind of misread it, right? Here's how most of us read it. Here's a few options. And uh, this is kind of choose your own adventure on how you misread this text. Uh, the eternal Son of God took on flesh for a while. It's like a cloak he, he takes off eventually. Or uh, the eternal Son of God was flesh-like. Right? He was kind of like a ghost that we could speak to, uh, you know, looked human sometimes, did some human stuff, but generally, obviously not human, just a ghost. Or, uh, the Word, okay, was revealed to flesh, uh, which is to say, uh, there's a special dose of inspiration given to a particular man. Or, we read it as the flesh was made into a God-like thing, right? There was some sort of superbly wonderful guy who graduated into Godhoodness. Or, uh, as the Greeks had stories about, you can think Hercules here, the gods made a lesser god who was also man. That's kind of how we subconsciously kind of do it with this passage, right? We kind of subconsciously evade the real uh, pinch. Here's the pinch. Listen to what verse 14 really says. And the word was made, or came to be flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the same word that uh, in verse 3, right, it says, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. If anything exists, it exists because of Christ, because of this word. And now you get to verse 14, and what happens? The word was made. Do you feel that? That's strange to say. The one who has made all things was himself then made. Fully God and fully man. Uh, John says that the word was made flesh. Now, uh, he could have picked a bunch of other words. Flesh is kind of a dirty word. Okay? Uh, sarks kind of feels that way. Sarks. Uh, he could have said that the word was made a body. Okay, there's another word for that in Greek. Uh, he could have said that the word was made... Uh, in human form, anthropomorphic, okay? He could have said that he was human-like. Or he could have said that uh, the word was made humanly, like an adverb, that, that the word did humanly stuff. He doesn't say that. He said the word was made flesh. If you turn to page three of your bulletin, I have a quote for you uh, from a guy named Cicero. Uh, he was a Roman senator uh, who died about 40 years before Christ was born. Uh, he was also a philosopher, one of the best-known authors of the day, really uh, crafted a lot of the Latin language. Uh, his views, uh, if they're not necessarily normative, they're not necessarily the view of everyone, they were certainly representative, right? This is basically what most people kind of had in their head. So this comes from a kind of a longer work where he's discussing the relationship of the gods to lights and stars. They're the kind of animating principle of fire and earth and water and so on. So he says... We now have a pretty clear picture of a large number of gods who are not idle, but 
So they're working, they're doing stuff, but they don't have to carry out the tasks they perform with laborious and unpleasant effort. Okay? They are not held together by veins and nerves and bones. Nor do they consume the sort of food and drink which would make their humors either too sharp or too dense. That is to say, they don't get indigestion. Okay? They don't become moody. They don't feel upset. They don't feel tired. He says, they don't have the sort of bodies which would lead them to dread or be afraid of falls and blows, being hit, or fear diseases produced by physical exhaustion. Now that's not a crazy thing to say. Okay, but you have to hear this just for a second. This, uh, this is Cicero's view that flesh has to work. Ugh. Flesh has to work. It's laborious. It's unpleasant, right? Flesh uh, is using the wrench, and the wrench slips off the nut and grinds its knuckles against the cement. Flesh scrapes its knees. Flesh sweats. Flesh gets backaches. Flesh is woven together with weak and dirty things like veins, nerves, and bones. Flesh eats food and gets indigestion. Right? Flesh gets sick and wishes it would just stop with a sore stomach and not go on to worse things. Flesh is vulnerable. It fears, it dreads, it's terrified by being hit and whipped and killed. For Cicero, gods cannot be fleshy. When we say that Christ was made flesh, we're saying something that's terribly dirty to the ears of the people who are reading this. Do you feel that for a second? In fact, you know, even for me, studying this week, as I really began dwelling on the fact that God is, that Christ is totally man and totally God, there were many times I just felt like, gosh, this is so crazy. <laughs> this is really hard to hold on to sometimes. This is the core, the mystery of the faith. I just want to take a moment and just think about what it means for the eternal Son of God, <clears throat> God of God, light of light, to be made fully man as well. Okay? I think this is something we don't necessarily like to do. Uh, in our culture, we either like to emphasize that Jesus was a teacher and just a good man. We talked about this last week. When in fact the scriptures say, no, no, no. He is, yes, a teacher, but he himself is the revelation. He is God. I think typically most of us fall on the other side. We like to talk about how much Christ is God, and but really facing the fact that He's flesh—that's a little bit, that's a little bit dicey. It's a little bit, a little bit tense. A few things: Christ was born. Christ was born. He had a birth. Listen to what Martin Luther says. He was a reformer from the uh, 1500s. He did not flutter about like a spirit, but he dwelt among men. He had eyes, ears, mouth, nose, chest. Stomach, hands, feet, just as you and I do. He took the breast. His mother nursed him as any other child is nursed. I have also a quote for you uh, from John Calvin on page 3. He's a contemporary of Luther. Lived in Switzerland. He says, uh, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, quoting Galatians 4, and there are innumerable other evidences that show him to have been subject to hunger, thirst, cold, and other infirmities of our nature. 
although Christ could have justly shown forth his divinity. He could have showed up and displayed his glory. He manifested himself as but a lowly and despised man. Listen to this. The eternal Son of God so submitted himself, so humbled himself that he became a fetus. Have you thought about that before? (laughs) The birth process, okay, uh, is painful not only for mothers, but also, uh, and I don't mean to be disrespectful or crass, uh, it's, it's a fairly graphic process. The baby is covered in amniotic fluid and bodily fluids from the mother. Mothers bleed for the child. Think about this for a second. The eternal Son of God was born of his mother, covered in bodily fluids, spitting and crying as he took his first fragile breaths as a baby. God was born a baby, entirely baby, yet entirely God. He was also born poor. Poor. He was born in a barn. It's gross. He was born to poor parents, people who were rejected by their family. You know, they show up, they come down from Nazareth and they show up to Bethlehem where David's, uh, sorry, Joseph's family is. And, and, and what? Why, why aren't they letting anyone's house? They're not married. She's pregnant, right? They have no place to go. Their family, obviously, has had some degree of rejection of them. Jesus is born to parents uh, who seem to have had a kid out of wedlock. He was born into squalor, to parents who were oppressed. Not born to kings, they're born oppressed by Roman authorities. Uh, And you remember the story, uh, Herod, the king of the time, he hears that there's been a king born in Bethlehem. He hears these prophecies announced about this king born in Bethlehem. And what's he do? Genocide. He kills all the male babies in Bethlehem. And so an angel comes and warns Joseph and Mary, and what do they do? They run. They run. So Jesus was born to refugees, people who were displaced, people who had absolutely no uh, inheritance, no land, no clout. Jesus is born to the lowest of the low. Here's a strange thing. Jesus grew. You guys ever thought about this? Luke 2.52 says that uh, Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God and man. Think about that for a second. Jesus grew in wisdom. Jesus grew in wisdom. That is to say there was a day where his youth meant that he did not understand things in his humanly mind, but had to learn them. Okay, one theologian, uh, Donald McLeod, comments, uh, he observed and learned and remembered and applied. This would have been impossible for him if he had been born in possession of a complete body of wisdom and knowledge. Instead, he was born with the mental equipment of a normal child. Experienced the usual stimuli and went through the ordinary processes of intellectual development. That doesn't mean that his human understanding was sinful or wrong, but that it was limited. Think about that. Jesus had to learn how to obey without knowing whether or not it would go well for him. He also had human emotions. He had joy. He had joy. Uh, Luke 10 tells us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, that he was beloved of God. Of course, he was filled with joy and being in the Father's presence. 
he also had deep thankfulness. I mean, you, you read through the Gospels, and what happens? He breaks into moments of praise. He just starts thanking God. He's, he's marked by thankfulness. But he also has anger. Right? He has anger. Remember, he comes into the temple, and he sees people uh, using prayer and using worship as a means to profit. Right? They're selling things, hawking their goods. And what's he do? He throws over tables and kicks them out. This is a house of prayer. He's angry that they are using his father's worship for business. He's righteously angry. He's angry that his disciples prevent children from coming to him. He's angry. He's also grieved and sorrowful. Think of him at the tomb of Lazarus. Okay, weeping. Weeping. Uh, same author comments, uh, each of the verbs used there, so he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Each of those verbs uses, uh, expresses the strongest emotion. So much so, in fact, that some early versions and manuscripts, some copyists, uh, were embarrassed by attributing such distress to Jesus. And so they modified the passage to read, uh, he was deeply moved as if he were troubled. We can't say that Jesus was actually troubled, that he was actually angry, the first verb means that he, sh he shuddered with indignation and outrage at death. The second verb means that he was troubled in himself. This is all wrapped up in the word flesh. This is what it means. Can you see what a scandal this is? Can you feel that? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we kind of feel a certain uh, embarrassment about this too. About the foolishness of God in Christ. Uh, the weakness of God in Jesus as a baby, uh, growing, even having bad breath at times, right? Uh, you know, we feel like we're protecting God when we say that Jesus was a human-like God or that he uh, was a God-like human. We feel like we're protecting something of God's honor. To say that God was made vulnerable and weak to say that his feelings might have been hurt? To say that uh, he would have been cut and bruised? That he might have even be said to be frail? This, we think, is too much. It's too much. John warns us in another letter, 1 John, and uh, a lot of the early church fathers warn us, listen, don't judge too quickly. Uh, we shouldn't limit God according to what we think he should be doing, and they're right. And this is our second point. It is precisely because Christ took on flesh, it is precisely because real God became real man and continues to be real man that we have any hope at all. And this is our second point. The fleshiness of Jesus is what heals our fallenness. The fleshiness of Jesus is what heals our fallenness. His fleshiness means that he dwelt among us. He was with us. He was tangible. Listen to what John says in his, his letter, 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, or handled, concerning the word of life that was made manifest, we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. Uh, the God-man, Christ, is not a concept. Okay? It's not an email idea. 
It's not something that's in the cloud, as it were. Okay? Uh, you had to be there. His fleshiness meant that he was in a particular place at a particular time and he was tangibly present, physically able to be touched. John tells us uh, that his glory was among us, that you could touch the very glory of God in bodily form. Jesus' humanity is what makes him accessible to us. Last week we said that uh, Jesus is God explained. We said that Jesus is not simply teaching about God, but is himself God, is himself the subject of revelation. This week we could say the other side. We could say that uh, Jesus so became human, that he so knows us from the inside, that Jesus is man-explained. That Jesus is man-explained. So that means that you can look to him and actually learn what real humanity is. What you are actually made for. He knows what it's like from the inside. He knows what it's like to have dirt in his eyes. He knows what it's like to have eaten something that just doesn't taste quite right. He knows what it is to be totally misunderstood by his parents and yet have obeyed joyfully to have been mocked and rejected by his siblings, and yet he didn't blast back at them. To have people wanting to use him for their own ends. The Gospels tell us that people were ready to make him king. They didn't want his kingdom. They wanted him to do what they wanted. He knows what it's like to have been unattractive. You know, I'll just throw in a personal comment here. I'm personally sick and tired of uh, those terrible pictures of Jesus, the drawings. You all know them, Right? Uh, the long-haired gentleman uh, who looks like a docile uh, model from the 1970s uh, of Anglo-Saxon uh, d- descent, uh, it's ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous. It's nonsense. Uh, it actually does so much more damage to us when we look at that uh, because listen to what Isaiah 53 says. Uh, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. That means he wasn't a handsome-looking Jewish man. Okay? At the very least, we do ourselves damage by having these pictures up. He knows, as well, not only what it is to be human from the inside, but what it is to be perfectly righteous, to be inherently pleasing to the Father, to have the right desire all the time, and yet to suffer for our sin, to suffer as one who is absolutely opposed to God. He was rejected and despised. He was tempted. You remember the temptations of Satan in the desert? He's tempted to seize power. He's tempted to choose the way that doesn't involve the cross. He's tempted to to seize power for himself and not have to face the Father's anger for sin. And yet he obeys. He agonized. He agonized. You know, you see him praying in the garden, uh, Garden Gethsemane, Gethsemane, right before he's crucified, the night before he's crucified, you see him praying. You see his humanity raw and weak and on his face and asking for prayer from the disciples. Think about that. He knows what it is to be more hated and despised than you or I ever have been because he carried in his flesh 
all of our weakness, but also our sins. Listen to the rest of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. To be punished as the most vile criminal in the entire history of humanity. And not only as the worst criminal, but as uh, the one who bore all of our sin. He was cursed, abandoned, punished, and consigned to a bloody and horrible death so that the very same God the Father might pour out all of His wrath on Jesus for our fleshy sins. It's precisely His fleshiness. It's precisely Christ being made weak, being made vulnerable, that gives us salvation. It's because of Him being killed that our sins are paid for. This is what we saw in our confession today, in the assurance of pardon. It's because Christ partook of the same nature, flesh and blood, that He was made a priest to pay for our sins. It's like uh, Brandon Ellis told me the other day, our hope is not like anyone else's. Our hope has fingernails and facial hair. This is the glory of Christ's fleshiness. He was made weak, and God looks like a fool. God looks like an absolute fool on the cross. But this is the center, the absolute center of God's genius, of God's glory, of His power. So this gives us our third point, the fullness of God, the power of God, the wisdom, the love, the righteousness, the absolute magnificent glory of God is revealed in this frail man, and yet what? Given to us through a frail witness. Through a frail witness. Okay? Fullness of God and a frail witness. So Jesus didn't stay dead. That's part of why we rejoice, right? His body rose from the dead, conquered death. He had a new life that death couldn't touch again. He ate with his disciples. He drank water and wine with his disciples. He hugged them, walked places, made fires. Okay, Body, real body, rose from the dead. Human flesh has beaten death. He also didn't stay on earth. He didn't stay. Uh, Luke 24 tells us that he was carried up into God's presence. So what that means is that there is a human body okay, before God the Father. That we have a priest that you could have shook his hand and then he went and actually now stands before God the Father. Well, that's glorious. And that's a whole nother sermon. Okay? <laughs> can't go there. But the problem for us is that we can't buy the CD. You know what I mean? Okay? You can't buy the book that Jesus wrote. There's no signed copies available. Uh, there's no podcast. Okay? Uh, what did he do? 
Because Jesus ascended, that means that his body is not here on earth anymore. You can't go there and see it. So how do we know? Where's the tangibility? What happened? Rather, he gave his witness, his words, his teaching, and yes, even his authority, even his authority to his disciples and their words and the church. Church. So what kind of witness do we have? We have a frail witness. We have a frail witness to who God is. Okay, John the Baptist, look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God, okay, this is different from the word, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, if you remember John, he's kind of a quirky guy, right? John lives out in the desert, and what's he wear? Kids, do you remember what John the Baptist wears? Fine silk robes and a nice crown. No. What's John the Baptist? What's his, what's his suit made out of? Camel hair. Does that sound nice? You guys ever pet a camel? <laughs> Scratchy, right? He's living out in the desert, covered in hair. That doesn't sound good, right? Ugh. What's he eat? Kids, you remember what he eats? John the Baptist? You guys remember what he eats? Fine steaks all the time. Burgers, tacos of the finest. No. What's he? Bugs. Bugs. The guy eats bugs because he lives out in the desert and he eats wild honey. What's the deal with this guy? Okay? Well, does God know what he's doing when he hired this guy? You know? Couldn't we have gotten someone who's a little bit better shaved? He's not a celebrated theologian of the day. Okay? Kings and queens do not like listening to John the Baptist speak on the mysteries. In fact, uh, one of the kings of the day beheaded John the Baptist because he hated him. Right? That's John. That's our guy. He's a frail witness. He's a true witness. He's out in the wilderness. He's a voice crying in the wilderness. This is the true one. He's a true witness, but very vulnerable. Even John's gospel, right? Uh, John tells us in the end of his gospel that he wrote this gospel so that you might believe that Jesus, okay, man, uh, is the Christ of God, is the long-awaited revelation of God, is the very Son of God. But this is a book. This can burn. Do you get what I'm saying here? Okay, this is a frail witness. God has made himself known uh, through a frail witness. And if we're honest, you know, it's not as if John's gospel gives us something that we now have this secret power to convince other people that Jesus really is the Christ. And then we have this bulletproof, logical argument that will just crush our enemies into believing that Jesus is the... It doesn't work that way. John's gospel is just a book. It's frail. You could burn it. Not only that, but the people who tell you about John's gospel, I'm just a dude, okay? You can ignore me. I could be a jerk to you tomorrow, and all this doesn't mean anything. God has entrusted himself. His very words. This is just a book, but it's God's very words. It's very true. Absolutely true. God has entrusted himself to a weak witness. Weak witness. We have the light of God testified to by this weak witness. 
I mean, you have to be kind of stupid to think that a book would really change the whole world, right? That's kind of, that's kind of crazy. What we really like is, uh, you know, people have, getting our guy in office and power so that he can pass certain laws and we can get the funding, right? So we want power, we want money, maybe a little might, maybe a little gun power. That's going to get things done. That's not the way the Lord does things. Lord gives weak and frail people his weak and frail but true word. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And he continues, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. They don't want some dead Messiah. And folly to the Greeks. God made man? This is ridiculous. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The fullness of God is on offer this morning. The fullness of God is on offer this morning. Here is truth. It's weak. It doesn't look flashy. There's no pomp. There's no fireworks. But here is truth, and truth is a person. He has a name. Here is grace for grace. Literally, piles and piles of grace. Grace for grace in place of grace. All over the place. You get grace for being given grace, which is the basis for getting more grace so that you might get more grace. That's the picture. That's what God does through this frail little book and this frail people. The fullness of God is on offer this morning through this broken community, through this frail word. New life is on offer this morning in Christ. If you would receive Christ, what does John say? Christ will give you the right to become a child of God. That is to live in the world such that the whole of creation tells you of God's care for you. That your whole life is characterized by being uh, loved and thought of by the Father. That's what's on offer. God will make you new as a newborn life, to be born of God. That's the language. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we reject this witness. We reject God's word. Not really because of any sort of uh, philosophical principle that we have that we just that's just impossible for that to be true because I hold to these philosophical posture. In reality, uh, we hold to whatever philosophical positions we have about whether God could become man uh, because it does something for us. Okay? It does something for us. We like to think that God couldn't know what we are going through, that he wasn't actually real man, because then we could ignore him and act like he's the same as our parents. They don't know. They don't know. God doesn't know. We like to think that he doesn't care that we're facing death and couldn't possibly have done anything about it because we want to wallow in self-pity. Because we want to indulge in everything we can get our hands on. That's why we have that belief. We like to think that the Word was not made flesh because then God can stay away from us and say nothing to us, never interfere with us, and we can remain the gods of our own lives. But be careful. God may very well give you the thing you want. 
He may very well, after you've rejected His Word, take away His Word, take away His kindness, take away His presence and His attention to your life. He may leave you entirely on your own. That is chilling. Life apart from God is not grace on grace. It's grueling work on grueling work. Earning, slaving, proving. It's controlled and it's miserable. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, receive Christ. He loves you so very much. He knows everything you've gone through and has himself suffered for it. There is real life on offer this morning. For you old saints, you delightful old saints who have uh, set your whole lives on clinging more and more deeply to Christ, let me just say this. Uh, you don't need to be embarrassed of being created or being fleshy. Okay? Uh, if Jesus had to grow mature, guess what? That means we can say, I'm kind of immature. That means we can say, I'm a new believer. I'm still trying to figure out what in the world I'm doing. Can you... Can you tell me how to do this Christian thing? And that's not a bad thing. There's no shame in that. Hebrews 2.11 says, For though he who sanctifies Christ and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Christ, very God, very man, is not ashamed to be called your brother. He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you who've received him. He delights in you. You know, the degree to which uh, you are not embarrassed of his humiliation on the cross and in taking on flesh is the same degree, degree to which you will be filled with joy and his glory because you can actually receive his mercy. So, brothers and sisters, let's not be embarrassed of that sacred head, wounded yet risen, now seated at the right hand of the Father because he's going to come back and judge the whole world, bringing life and also truth. Amen. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you that you have taken on flesh. And uh, I confess my own need to hear your word, that you are not ashamed would you work in our hearts the humility to not think so much of ourselves, but to uh, cling to you, even in your lowest state, even being born, even dying, so that we might have your new life being risen from the dead. Do these things by your spirit, Lord. Come and make new life. Amen.